with so many podcasts out there, shows can get lost in the shuffle. That's why we implore you to check out Too Many Captains. You can find us at a moviepodcast.com. Five unique takes on Hollywood movies and culture. Find us on Twitter at It's a Film Podcast. Check our intellectual deep dives into theatrical films. Find us on Instagram at Too Many Captains Productions. Unique takes on soundtracks. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash too many captains productions. Find us at a moviepodcast.com on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And now, here comes a new episode of Collateral Cinema. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Ashley Chancellor. I'm Robert Ortegon. And this is Collateral Cinema. Welcome to Collateral Cinema, the only movie podcast that matters, where we focus on good movies, bad movies, and everything else in between in the world of cinema. We are podcasting straight from somewhere in South Texas, and yes, my friends, we are a 420-friendly podcast, so smoke it if you've got it. You know, for the first time in uh, a few episodes now, we're all together in one roof, right guys? Yeah, definitely. This is actually quite nice. No I skyping. Mean, no great. skyping. It's great. No. Yeah, I was actually staying with my parents for the night anyway, so I thought I'd reach out. I mean, we've all been quarantining and social distancing for long enough now that we, we considered it safe enough since I was out here to go ahead and record in the old studio. Yep, the old school studio right here, Section 9 Studios in Lake Hills, Texas. Yes, sir. Where, you know, you and Robert still do the Collateral Cinema Director's Cut. And the last few episodes of Collateral Cinema, you know. Yeah, yeah. We, we've been doing it uh, on Skype and everything. But, so. um, but yeah, no, we're all under one roof together. So none of that sketchy FaceTime or Skype audio distortion. It's just, just our pure, unadulterated voices. Yeah, it's nice to kind of have everybody in the same place. You know, and on some decent microphones for a change. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I made sure to bring out our pod mics from the studio back in San Antonio, so. Yeah, yeah. They sound a lot better? They do, right? Oh, yeah, they sound way better. Shit. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we're sitting here in the 21st century, just outside of San Antonio, Texas, a little town called Lake Hills, Earth. I say that because we're talking about... Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Might as well just jump right into that. Yeah, I find it interesting that you're jumping straight to the fourth movie. This was my personal favorite of the series. And I think that out of the Star Trek films, this is the one that 
it's the most unique, I should say. And I think it holds a place, you know, a special place in a lot of people's hearts. Uh, I grew up watching a lot of Star Trek. It's been a while, admittedly, since I've seen the series, but I used to watch the original series, The Next Generation, and I used to watch the films as well. And I still watch the the new films, you know, the Kelvin timeline films. Those are cool. Damn. Yeah. I still haven't seen those, actually. Oh, they're so. badass, dude, yeah, actually. Yeah, yep. yeah. But uh, Star Trek has always been a favorite of mine. Spock is actually, I would say, my favorite character, which is, you know, uh, w- another reason why, and I wasn't even aware of this, but why this film just happens to be my favorite is I think it was directed by Leonard Nimoy. And it's arguably a movie that pretty much focuses on Spock as a character because by this point, he's already been resurrected. Right, what? right. It kind of fits into a nice little context with the other Star Trek films, but. In fact, it's it's a direct continuation of a story arc that starts in The Wrath of Khan, which is also one of the greatest, you know, considered one of the greatest Star Trek films. Usually, Wrath of Khan is considered the favorite, but I, I've heard a lot of people say Voyage Home. It's my personal favorite. And I can totally see why. I mean, out of all the Star Trek movies, especially featuring the original cast, this is quite possibly the most subtle of all the movies. I mean, you can even argue many of the characters are a lot more dialed back and subdued than they were in other movies. Yeah, I I see what you mean. I mean, Robert... I know you haven't seen mm. as much Star Trek. I'm just learning all this as I go along, Talk, listening to you guys talk, really. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just taking it all in. So I guess this was must have been a unique experience for you. Hmm. I mean, you said you haven't even seen all of Wrath of Khan, right? No, I caught that right at the end. Yeah. I mean, that's the most memorable scene, I guess, besides Khan. Seen a few of the episodes of the original, but, you know, I really didn't get into it a whole lot, you know. But, you know, this was released right, you know, during the 80s, uh, 1986. This is actually a year prior to The Next Generation. So, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, obviously the original series ran its course in the 60s. And, you know, just, I guess, you know, 20 years later, they're doing the films. The characters, the, the cast are a little bit older and it's noticeable. You know, Kirk is now an admiral and by various means, they end up always together in each film. But... I like how this one just picks up where the last one left off, which picked up where the last one left off. Then, you know, it's kind of a self-contained trilogy. Yeah, that's something that I noticed, and it's all, it's all centered around Spock. You can argue that you could almost call this the Spock trilogy. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, oh, no, definitely. You know, this is also, and, and appropriately so, the first Star Trek film that was directed by an original cast member. You know, as opposed to The Search for Spock, which for me wasn't as phenomenal as this film. And I I think that's because Nimoy has just a lot more creative freedom and is more intimately involved in the story writing process in this one. Yeah, I think that much is obvious. I mean, and and it's obvious that he learned a lot from directing Search from Spock. I mean, he kind of learned from his mistakes because that was his first time actually directing, right? Right. Search for Spock was was actually the first movie to incorporate that. But Leonard Nimoy is still like the first original cast member who had that right. And I think that that's important because Nimoy gets it. He expertly directs his co-stars and and himself. You know, having worked with Star Trek for years, he knows these characters and he is even able to work with Shatner's quirks and kind of make his acting seem a little less cheesy like they are in some of the Star Trek films and more um, works with 
with his ability and is able to make it come across well. Yeah, well, you remember earlier I said that most all of the performances in this movie are more subdued than they were in previous Star Trek movies. That's especially so for Shatner. Yeah, and, and you know, even more than subdued, I feel like they're just manipulated in the right way. Because this movie is definitely got a more campy feel than some of the other Star Trek films. You know what's weird? I don't really feel that it's campy. I think that this is actually the most cinematically sound movie out of the entire original cast movies. I don't disagree, but there, there's something with the more comedic tone that it takes. Like I said, it embraces some of, some of the quirks of the characters and works to their benefit. I don't know if I would call this comedic, though. That would that would imply that that was an angle that Nimoy was really going for. I think he was going for just humorous, which is kind of a different kind of tone for it, you know? Okay. It's humorous to me. I see what you're saying. I see what you're yeah. saying. But, yeah, I think this film honestly sticks out to a lot of people. I mean, it's one of the even-numbered Star Trek films. Everybody knows the rule. Yeah. Even-numbered Star Trek films are generally considered better. However, Search for Spock is actually, you know, somewhat positively received. I thought it was kind of weird. I, I'm not I'm not as big into it. I think that the accelerated aging thing is kind of weird. I kind of remember Search for Spock. It's been a while since I've seen that one. It's kind of forgettable, know? right? Dude, I haven't ex seen any of these films, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry yeah, for that. sure, for uh, sure. So, I don't know what you guys are talking about, really. <laughs> But I think that that kind of makes it all the better because this really is, even though it does work um, with the pre-existing story arc, it is a self-contained film in its own right. And it's an excellent snapshot of Star Trek. I think it, it kind of holds faithful to the spirit of the original series, more so than a lot of the other movies do. Yeah, and that goes back to Nimoy, you know, because he really understood what Star Trek was truly about, probably just as much as uh, Roddenberry would have yeah would no have. yeah definitely I, I i completely agree having worked with roddenberry for for years and you know being a genuine friend of him and shatner and takei and forrest to kelly you know yeah and i think that where he's really allowed to shine in this movie being the director and also being you know responsible for conceiving the original story with the producer harv bennett i don't can't say that i know anything else that bennett's been behind yeah, yeah. But, I mean, just mainly Star Trek, right? He was, um, let me see, doing a little bit of research, all right? Damn, we're researching during the recording. God damn it. It's okay. Once again, Collateral Cinema's work ethic uh, on display right here. Yeah, okay, so he was he was pretty much involved in Wrath of Khan and actually went through and watched and, you know, uh, screened all 79 episodes of the original series to prepare. So he and, and Nimoy kind of conceived this story together, and we'll have more to say about what that original conception was and, you know, how that shines through in the film, but I think it's worth noting that Bennett also contributed to the screenplay. Now, the other... Uh, contributor to the screenplay was Nicholas Meyer, who is the director and writer of Wrath of Khan. Yeah. As I said earlier, you know, also considered one of the best Star Trek films. Like this one and, you know, Voyage Home and Wrath of Khan, easily best of the original series films. Yeah, without a doubt. Without I mean, a doubt. I think I think that's that's pretty well, you know, there's a, there's a pretty good consensus on that, I would feel like. There's also Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes. I don't have a lot more to say about them, but they are... A, 
part of the screenplay. So we, we may as well throw their names out. But yeah, no, Star Trek up until this point, I mean, started with the, the motion picture, which was obviously following the original series. The motion picture is, again, it's an odd number Star Trek film. It's kind of was a bit of a, a, a commercial failure, as I understood it. And um, no, it was a commercial success. So it greenlighted more sequels, I think. I think it, it did fine, but it wasn't it was negatively received. Wrath of Khan really was what renewed interest in Star Trek again. And then also was, you know, heavily successful. Well, we'll talk about the commercial success of, of this film in particular, but that continued in Search for Spock, which yeah. Nimoy directed. And then, you know, like I said, they, they form kind of that self-contained story arc. So you've got the Enterprise crew started up at the beginning of this. There's no Enterprise. They're actually on a Klingon bird of prey. And that's an innovative angle to take for Star Trek in its own right. Yeah. yeah. They catch you up to speed in the very beginning, but, you know, during the events of Search for Spock, the Enterprise, the original one, is destroyed. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I thought that that's an interesting angle, that this movie actually takes place in what's an odd setting for a Star Trek film. You know, there's no space. It's all set in 1980s Earth in San Francisco. Yeah, that's really fascinating is to see how these classic characters that we've all know and love for so long, and especially with the performances that they're given under Nimoy's direction, how they actually interact with what was at the time modern San Francisco. Yeah, because, I mean, the movie actually takes place in its contemporary time. So it's an interesting aspect and it's even got an environmental message, which is interesting. Uh, we'll get into that later, but... Yeah. You know what else was in San Francisco? Huh? What's the that? Room. The Room. Oh, the Room. Hey, the Room. It had to be mentioned. But, I mean, Robert, what, do you, what did you think about the plot? Sort of a save the world message, you know? What do you think? That's definitely yeah. in there. Uh, is, that's right? kind of what I was hinting at, you know, with the, the environmental message of the film. But, I mean, as far as the setting goes or the, or the performances or, or really just the flow of the story. I think it flowed pretty pretty well together, you know. Yeah, it did. I mean, I really haven't seen any of this other than a few TV shows off of Netflix. But, but Robert, you have to admit that this was actually a pretty easy movie to get into, even if you haven't watched a whole lot of Star Trek, it was, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, you got into it. You got a feel for the characters' personalities. They really yeah. allowed them to shine and stand out, each one of them, all of the original cast members. Just of watching Leonard Nimoy's performance with Shatner is just pretty badass. Yeah. They have a lot of genuine chemistry, and that's because they're you know lifelong friends, along with the rest of the Enterprise crew, and I believe Gene Roddenberry. You know? Yeah, but uh, I, I really like the time travel plot in particular. I'm a, oh, I'm yeah. a sucker for time travel plots, and I believe this isn't the first time the Enterprise crew has gone through time travel. There has to be, I know, at least an episode or two of the original series. God, it's been so long, but I know they've dealt with time travel. I mean, they dealt with the parallel realities with like the bearded Spock. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I, I remember because the characters aren't too surprised by that. They are kind of just pick up on it. You know what I mean? As soon as Spock mentions the, the idea of a time warp, you know, He's pretty much already planning the trajectory of that time warp, like right then and there. They're ready. Yeah, Kirk's they're, they're like, ready. let's yeah. let's you know, Spock uh, set the calculations for time warp. They've <laughs> 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 done this shit before, I think. Yeah. So, and one thing that's interesting is I think that you know, you Bo, you and I will watch the movie. We kind of wondered if maybe this movie actually you know is a causal loop. Yeah, yeah, mm. that actually kind of makes sense. Like. 
in a way, them going back in time might have actually laid the groundwork for the Federation later, or at least certain technological advances that would lead to the Federation and Starfleet and whatnot. And then, of course, the... The most obvious example of that is uh, Scotty giving that formula for the really, really strong aluminum to that uh, engineering manufacturing company. And they hint like, at it, you know? Yeah. Bones is the one that tells him, you know, he's talking to Dr. McCoy, and he, Bones is like, oh, you know, how can you be messing with that? What, what, why are you giving him ideas from the 23rd century? And Scotty's like, oh, well, how do you know he wasn't the one who invented it? Exactly. Hey, he's yeah, that, right about that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty much... Uh, a lampshade, honestly. Yeah, so this definitely could be uh, the bootstrap paradox. We, we could be forming that causal loop. I'm not opposed to it. I think that time travel is complicated and can work in mysterious ways. And I find it weird when people try to tie movies and, and think that time travel should have consistent rules when I feel like it wouldn't. Like Back to the Future. Oh. All the paradoxes and the time loops that was opened up in that series, I mean, yeah. it's a lot to follow. And here it's presented in more of a straightforward uh, scenario. They don't dwell on it. There's like, okay, like I said, it's an accepted fact that they can and they have in the past. So they're just, okay, we're going to time travel. You know, they weren't about trying not to disclose anything to offset the future. I mean, I think that falls under the, um, what's the name of the rule? The rule of non-interference, the prime directive. Prime directive, yeah. Right? Yeah. I think, you know, there's a little bit of that in there, but of course, they don't dwell on it. They just kind of go straight forward. Okay, they're in the past. And I, I think that really works to, you know, this movie's benefit in a lot of ways. Another thing that's interesting, you know, other than the time travel plot, like I said before, is there's no Enterprise. In fact, their starship is dead once they land, you know, in, in 80s and... There's not even a whole lot of uh, 23rd century tools used. I mean, the one time Chekhov pulls out his phaser, it doesn't work. Yeah, it completely malfunctions. Like it doesn't exist or something? Almost, right? right. <laughs> yeah. But but then again, Kirk's phaser works just his fine. His works. Yeah. Yeah. I and, mean... And the teleportation, of course. That, that works. still works. Well, Chekhov blamed it on the radiation because he oh. was in one of the nuclear vessels. Nuclear mm. vessels. Oh, that that brings up that Futurama episode where they brought together the original cast. They had Shatner, Nichols. They, they didn't have uh, McCoy, of course. They didn't have DeForest oh. Kelly. Uh, but they have uh, Walter Koenig, and he uh, he pretty much uh, completely lampshaded that. And he's, like, very, very aggravated at having to say Wessel. <laughs> he's, he's aggravated because Fry is just like, oh, say Wessel, say Vessel. It's like... <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, they use that as, as a humor point. And that's another thing with this movie. Like I said, is the comedy element, or I guess I should say the humor element. The humorous elements, yeah. You know? It's just that, and there's a lot of humor throughout. It sparks references to colorful metaphors. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Is basically just seeing Spock trying to wrap his head around profanity. Yeah, you know, and that's interesting for Spock's character because his character, you know, kind of goes through uh, a metamorphosis in a way because you know he had died in Search for Spock and was resurrected in this movie, and still, you know, he's kind of amnesiac to some extent. He's still regaining some of his memories and his. Basically, he's not in touch with his human side. You know, he's kind of regressed a little bit. And I feel like Leonard Nimoy did that for a reason so that he would have that dynamic in the movie. 
Yeah, exactly. It kind of brings it back to the original series a little bit and how Spock was in that original run. Right, because at the end of Wrath of Khan, I mean, he straight up says, you know, I am your, I am and forever shall be your friend. So he's at that point, he's embraced the idea. And so I feel like Nimoy wanted to regress that a little bit so that we'd be able to chase that dynamic a little bit. I like it. But another thing that I really enjoy about the plot in particular is that there is no clear-cut villain, is there? Nope. No, there's not an actual antagonist here. There's just this probe that shows up out of nowhere, and it starts vaporizing the all of the Earth's oceans. Yeah. And it turns out that it's in search for humpback whales, which apparently this probe has been communicating with for probably centuries. Right. And, and as far as they know, you know, there's no hostile intent there. It's just it no longer is receiving the signal from the humpback whales, which it's communicating. Uh, it takes a while for them to figure that out because humpback whales are extinct. You know, so it reaches out just to figure out, hey, what's up? And what they have to do, the entire crux of the plot there is is that they have to go back in time. You know, they have to, I guess, voyage home, <laughs> kind of make homage yeah. to that at the, you know, at the end, especially. But they have to go back in time and then uh, and, and take humpback whales from the past, from before they were extinct, bring them into the future. Which, again, if, if we're accepting the causal loop theory, the time loop or immutable time travel, maybe they were the reason why the species went extinct is because they took the last two and brought them to the future. and Possibly. You know, but I don't but know. but then again, it propagates the species in the 23rd century, right? Yeah. Where they're safe, because mm. remember, one of the whales was female and pregnant, right? So I mean, the movie has that message about like whaling, and I really felt like that hit home. You know, if fucking Nimoy, the, the you know the guy who plays Spock, says. You know, maybe we should care a little bit about our environment and the species around us. Yeah. Says it, you know, maybe there's there's a there's, you know, something to be said there cuz I mean the whaling industry is just cruel. I mean, I think anyone regardless of what being a vegetarian or vegan, pretty all much, of us kind of agree that well, that's, yeah, of course, you know, my stance is is that pretty much any type of industry that involves animals in any manner is inherently cruel and yeah. is just unethical in every way that's just the way that i see it but you know that that's i'm sorry that's just me being the preachy vegan i yeah. guess you know, sorry it's, it's we, same, we know how you feel though sorry the, guys it's the same message in free willy movies remember those <laughs> yeah, <laughs> free willy. yeah it actually does have a similar message as free willy but i mean that's an even more uh, prescient uh type of movie because you know, in recent years, there has been examples of whales attacking their trainers at SeaWorld. SeaWorld, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm no vegan, but I know where to draw a line. And animal cruelty, I mean, there's no reason. Fuck SeaWorld. I mean, <laughs> yeah, straight <laughs> and, up. So you hear that, SeaWorld? Fuck you. And fuck whaling, you know? I really think that the other villain in this movie besides the pro, because like I said, there's no clear-cut villain, but there's some implicit ones. And I think one of those villains is mankind itself, especially in the 21st century. Straight up. I mean, a good example of that is when DeForest Kelly has to go retrieve uh, uh, Walter Koenig's character uh, from the 20th century hospital, and he's just like, we can't let those 20th century doctors fucking touch him. It's like... 
He's like, what is this, the Dark Ages? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he goes off on all of the medical practitioners there. He goes off on them. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he definitely does. And, and I think that that's really central to the, the setting in this case. I mean, the characters are all completely out of their element in 1980s San Francisco. I mean, what, what do you guys think about that? I think it's awesome that they actually split up the group. The, yeah. Like it sent them off on different uh, errands or missions or whatever. It kind of showed the different dynamics between the cast members, you know. Hmm. Like, like for instance, uh, having uh, Michelle Nichols and Walter Keenig go together to find the nuclear vessels. Yes. Like, t totally. And, and I like the scene where Scotty is trying to talk to the computer. He's like, computer. Oh, that is so <laughs> classic. <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny to see these characters just completely out of their element and in a world that they don't understand. And what's funny to me about that scene, going back to the computer, is looking back from it now, our computer technology has advanced far beyond what it was back then. I mean, that was pretty much like a Macintosh, right? It was like yeah, a, something. It, it had a mouse, it looked like. It had a mouse and everything. But even all these years later, it's still relatable. Yeah, no, I it mean, is. technology marches on, and here we are. Now that shit looks like dinosaur technology <laughs> to us, but oh, yeah. it still had all of the components that we still have the, today, a mouse, keyboard. Well, we're we're far from the the socialist utopia yeah. of, of Star Trek. I, you know, I think we missed our chance because I think First Contact takes place in what, like the '90s or something. Something like that, and that's it, the other time travel one. And, and it was the Vulcans that made First Contact, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we've already missed our opportunity. Our our timeline already divulged from the Star Trek prime timeline. Uh, too so. bad. It, it would be nice to be in that timeline. It really <laughs> would by this point. But yeah, the, the first contact, that's a next generation film. And that's the other time travel one. I, I remember, I don't remember it as well, but I remember it. I more remember the Borg one and I remember Nemesis. Nemesis came out. I, I watched that in theaters. Oh, nice. fuck yeah. Didn't that have some of the Star Trek Voyager characters involved? Like the Seven of Nine in it? Or am I thinking of something different? I think so Nerd. it's been a while. Nerd. Oh, what, what the fuck are what? you talking oh, about? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Mr. I will binge eight fucking Friday the 13th movies in one night. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. want to call us nerds? I did that. We were trying to we were trying to we were actually going to try to record this episode and we just ended up binging Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah. We, we were supposed to record this last night, but you know what? I'll take the hit on it and yeah. spend all day all editing you guys tomorrow. Fault. We had to watch Friday the 13th. Happy 40th anniversary. <laughs> yeah, happy 40th, Friday the 13th. I don't know, guys. Maybe maybe y'all ought to do like incorporate that into like your director's cut or Yeah, maybe we should do a little exploration of the Friday the 13th franchise. What do you think, Robert? We should. Yeah. Hell, I I I say let's go ahead and make that the next episode. Why not? Right? Yeah, we can probably binge that just for an hour, probably. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, man. But um yeah. Yeah, well, I think what, what I really love the most about this film is just how well uh, directed all of the original cast are. I mean, you got William Shatner as Admiral James T. Kirk. And while Shatner is, I hesitate to say good, I mean, he's just Shatner, he's weird, but he is the only Kirk. I mean, well, Chris Pine actually does does do a great job, but I mean, he is Kirk. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is probably the best version of Kirk outside of the original series, I think. Yeah, after the original series and the movies is when he started doing getting weird and doing that weird, you know, speech thing he does that... Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of that Christopher Walken where he pauses in between... Sentences. And, but see, like I said, it's not as noticeable here because Nimoy knows how to direct him. 
Exactly. He knows how to rein Shatner back, how to dial him back a little. Or just use him effectively, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and then, of course, there's Leonard Nimoy as Spock, and he really does take his character, who he understands, I think, more intimately than anybody else, manages to, to put him in, in, in the right situations to really allow his development to shine. And, you know, like I said earlier, to have that dynamic that the cold-blooded Vulcan has, you know? Yeah, it's probably, in the end, the most humane presentation of the Spock character in the whole series, I think. Yeah, you know, they definitely go for that angle here. And him rediscovering his humanity is, is a big part of this movie. I would argue it's the main focus of the movie. Yeah, I think so. I think I think it is it is the it is especially of that, you know, that kind of that story arc, that trilogy of movies with Wrath of Khan Search for Spock and The Voyage Home. Of course, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy star most extensively, but we do have obviously Dr. Leonard McCoy Bones by DeForest Kelly classic performance. You've got Montgomery Scott, played by James Doohan. Hikaru Sulu, played by the great George Takei. Oh, man, he is fantastic in this movie. Like, I would say that this is probably the best version of Takei as well. Yeah. Honestly. Or of of Sulu, I should say. The best version of Sulu. Yeah. I mean, the other characters of the Enterprise don't get as big of a spot, but I mean, Leonard Nimoy manages to to throw them in there and, and, and use them effectively, I think. I know I keep saying that, but he really understands these characters. And, you know, you've got Pavel Chekhov, you know, mentioned before, Walter Koenig, yep. uh, and Uhuru. Uhuru, motherfucker. You know, Uhura. one time after seeing you know the 2009 Star Trek film, I remember I was like sleep talking apparently afterwards, and I was saying Uhura in my sleep. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Fuck yeah. You know, they never reveal her first name, I think, until the newer films. I think this film was the first one that revealed Chekhov's first name, Pavel. Really? But um, Wow. Yeah, and Nichelle Nichols obviously puts in a, a great performance as well. And then we've got Catherine Hicks as Dr. Jillian Taylor. That's actually a really great performance right there because she's representative of the modern age of right. the time. She's she's probably most representative of the actual audience. That's what I was thinking, movie. too. Yeah. Is, you know, she's kind of that character that is just running into the... She represents us and our perspective, even though we have grown, you know, to love these characters. But, you know, from Robert's perspective, someone who doesn't have as much experience with that, Mm-mm. you know, you still have that window. Uh, and I think this, this film being firmly rooted in present-day Earth, or at the time, present-day Earth. Yeah. An Earth that is more familiar to you kind of helps, and, and it grounds the film. That's what makes this one of the most unique and interesting Star Trek plots. Arguably, in a way, it, it kind of removes the sci-fi from the story for a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's what makes this one interesting to talk about, hmm. um, and why I chose this for the podcast when you know someone else may have said Wrath of Khan or one of the Next Generation movies, which definitely had a, a, a better, what's the word, uh, production quality, I should say. Yeah. Starfleet emergency, red alert. Earth is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the problem. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu? The 
take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. We will beam in tonight, collect the photons, and beam out. I want you all to be very careful without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring you in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you! Book eight. Book nine. Now. Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. But this is just classic Trek. It really is. And, and the original series is Trek to me. I know everybody's Star Trek is a little bit different. But I, this is what I grew up watching the most. Yeah, for me, it was the original series, most of these movies, and then Next Generation, and then like Deep Space Nine to a degree. I've seen mm. a little bit of DS9. DS9 is interesting, though it's a little thick on the political intrigue, I think. It's it's a way more political version of Star Trek. I think Star Trek is actually pretty political. It is, people... it is, it is political. I'm just saying that compared to the other series, it's even more pronounced. I would say it's even a little more complex in DS9. Right. But Benjamin Sisko is is a really, really awesome character. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He really is. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, I, The Voyage Home, I think, really hits home for me in a lot of ways, especially with the cinematography. I mean, what did you guys think about that? I really liked the cinematography. What do you think, Robert? I mean, old San Francisco, 1986, looked pretty good. It did, you can, for the most part. You can see a lot of the, the old bullet scenes, dude. I think I saw a few of the streets. Some of the backdrops for some yeah, of the bullet. the car chasing, dude. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Hell yeah. A lot, a lot of that was there. Yeah, that's right. That's a straight-up San Francisco movie, yeah, huh? exactly. Hell yeah. yeah. I mean, this one is one of the first uh, Star Trek films to be extensively shot. Well, actually, the first Trek film extensively shot on location, although they did use some sets. Yeah. Hmm. I would imagine so for the, in the interior of the ships yeah, the and ship. everything, and also, also probably for the naval yard that they uh, infiltrate. And actually, originally they were going to film the scene in Golden Gate Park, but then ended up having to change because Golden Gate Park was raining. Oh, shit. So it was raining in Golden Gate Park. So that was actually filmed in a different park. But yeah, there, there definitely are some sets even of San Francisco used. But the set design works, obviously, because you really don't know the difference as an audience between that. And, and obviously you can tell that it was shot on location. But I, I, you know what stood out to me more than that was the practical effects in this movie. 
they really hold up. Like I was actually very satisfied with a lot of the scenes in space and also like they use the teleportation effect. They put that to good use. Like especially teleporting two ginormous humpback whales in a huge yeah. volume of water. Yeah. Like that was well done. I mean, a lot of the uh, set design was really, really cool. Like, like I like the way that uh, Starfleet Command looked. That was a really interesting look to everything. And also, just the settings of San Francisco. Mm. I mean, that's it's just a great city to use as a backdrop. I mean, we've already brought up a couple movies that was filmed there. And, I mean, it makes sense that there would be a whaling institute there that would be rehabilitating humpback whales and everything. No, definitely. I think this movie doesn't have to rely as much on special effects. In fact, uh, you know, arguably, the special effects aren't as important as, you know, the the characters and, 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 the, and the dialogue there. But I, I do want to say that, you know, just, just the fact that it, it's being shot on location really helps with that. And the fact that it's being shot, you know, in contemporary earth and you know 1980s earth really helps because like i said they don't, they don't have to rely as much on special effects and, and you can have more story more characters that really shine in this film but one thing i will note uh, in addition to the practical effects they actually do use some cg animation in this film but in particular in the dream sequence while they're traveling through time which they wanted to do to have that unreal quality that's divorced from the rest of the film yeah, it almost has shades of the ending of 2001, A Space Odyssey, kind of. Yeah. Now, I don't know about the beaming effects. I, I mean, I guess those would have had to be CG, right? I would imagine so. But then again, they managed without it in the original, so... But, but I mean, definitely the morphing heads of the cast members, that's definitely early CGI, and it really doesn't look that bad for its time. No, and it, because they only use it, they use it effectively. CG's not bad, and you just have to use it effectively, and it, it does create a tone that's interesting. It's kind of an odd part of the movie, if I'm not, if I, you know, if I'm being honest, but I'm glad that it's there. I, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like I said earlier, to me, this movie does feel, feel campy, but I do feel like all the characters are played to their strengths. The dialogue is well executed. We did mention, of course, the environmental message as well, with the endangerment of humpback whales. I mean, that's, that's a real life issue even today right mm. it still is poaching. yeah definitely. whaling in general poaching mm. yeah, yeah poaching. It's, it's terrible fuck that although i remember playing an assassin's creed for black flag which you know sneak peek guys that's going to be a uh a uh our season finale on collateral gaming just just to just to let you know if you're listening collateral gaming listeners but anyway there is a little bit of whaling in that one so i, I feel bad doing it but it, it's accurate to the time I can't really say anything about that because I haven't played it yet. I mean, I'm a I'm aware of what game you're talking about. It's the one where there are pirates and the everything. Pirates. I mean, during, the, during the pirate era, they're you know just being reflective of the time. But that brings me back. One of my favorite parts is the fact that you know Kirk references the fact that in this period of time there was a lot more profanity than in the future. Uh, yeah, it's great how he tries to explain that to Spock. Like, like I said earlier, Spock is still trying to wrap his head around profanity. Yeah, and he gives a, a pretty simplistic ex explanation for it. I would say enough that simplistic enough that you know Spock can actually understand it. Right. No, definitely. Spock really. Um, that, that's kind of the running gag here, and, and I like it. Is is his 
use of colorful metaphors. I, again, I mentioned earlier Spock's my favorite character because as somebody with Asperger's, Spock being the logical character who had emotions but wasn't quite in tune with them, couldn't understand them, always um, was something I could relate to. And I just love him in this movie and just throwing in, he, he just throws in profanity. The hell I don't. And he doesn't ever understand it. <laughs> yeah, the hell I don't. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And and just that whole, um, I like the scene where they're like, hey, you know, by the way, most people in this time aren't going to be accustomed to seeing a Vulcan. So just takes a piece off his robe and just wraps it around his ears. And it totally works, especially around San Francisco. Yeah, and, and, you know, while Spock cannot tell a lie, Kirk encourages him to exaggerate the truth. And, and obviously, he's not going to go out and say, I'm a, you know, he omits that information that he's a time traveler to preserve, you know, whatever. Mm. But he answers honestly most of the time, and Kirk just kind of has to say, oh, he's a hippie. He... He did too much LDS. <laughs> LDS. <laughs> Man, I don't know. Uh, LSD can do some crazy shit. I don't know if it could do that to you. I mean, I, I always felt it to be more uh, mind altering. I, I kind of feel like I'm in a I'm I'm in a better state. I can. Y yeah, Ash. Why don't you tell us about your drug experiences? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and did you take any drugs while watching this movie recently? I can't publicly say anything about that. Okay, I got you. No, I'm gotcha. just kidding. We just smoke weed watch, watching this. So. Yeah, that's all we do. But I wonder Seriously. This, how this movie would be on acid. I wouldn't want to know, honestly. You wouldn't want to know? Mm, nah. No Star Trek on acid? Hmm. No more drugs? Nope. I I don't know. Maybe maybe some shrooms. On shrooms, dude. Yeah, it could work. Hmm. It could work. I don't know. But yeah, no, I love a lot of the, the cinematography and execution in this film. Uh, the costume design is worth mentioning. I mean, you've got their Federation uniforms that's kind of juxtaposed with, you know, their for-the-time contemporary Earth clothing. It's interesting that they actually still managed to blend in, even yeah. with their uh, original attire. I mean, they just pretty much took off any uh, ranking that they might have right. like in their badge and whatnot. What's interesting is they don't, you know, try to, to blend in and, and put on other clothing. And a lot of time travel stories they do, but they kind of just stand there and they're it kind of like I said, it, it keeps them isolated and more out of their element throughout the entire film. Yeah, well the setting of San Francisco really helps there. I mean, there's lots of interesting folk that live there. <laughs> Definitely. But yeah, it's no it's no uh, wonder that you know, this movie was a major commercial success. Referred to by, you know, Nimoy himself as the most well-received of all Trek films up to that point. I totally believe that. I mean, I kind of feel like I probably should have looked up the Siskel and Ebert review of the movie. I mean, I'm sure that there is one online on RogerEbert.com. But, I mean... I'm sure the critics loved it. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe we should check out Rotten Tomatoes or RogerEber.com. I, I don't know. I know it had a positive reception. It did. And, yeah. and it still holds up today. I think a lot of people still love the movie today. You know, it, it has that legacy. It was amazingly entertaining all throughout, you know? It, it's even a lot better than I remember it. Yeah. I mean, and the special effects playing a lesser role than the characters and dialogue definitely helps. I think that you know, that contributes to the film holding up. It's not held back by bad effects that eventually would be, you know, technologically behind because it doesn't rely on those. That's what makes the film, I think, hold up now. Yeah, it's a lot timelier than some of the other Star Trek movies before and after it. 
Yeah, I mean, after it was it's kind of a, an odd point. I mean, we've got the Final Frontier, which was directed by William Shatner, and I, you know, Shatner's good as Kirk. I just I don't know if if he really does directing well in that movie. It, that movie kind of really did come off as campy and not in as good of a way. Yeah, Final Frontier's weird. Undiscovered Country is generally well received, but I don't remember much of it. That's the one where Kirk and McCoy end up in a Klingon prison, right? Yeah, it does. And you know what's weird is that one's kind of forgettable for me for some reason, but I guess I need to go back and watch it. I will go ahead and remark right now that the prison part is the only thing I remember about the movie, so you might have a point there. You know, before watching this, I I decided to go ahead and watch Wrath of Khan. Um, I followed the even-numbered Star Trek rule there. And I think that, you know, I know that this movie is, is... like I said, still loved and I think held up only maybe second to Wrath of Khan when it comes to the original series films. But I mean that that's a great film too. Don't get me wrong. It's that's I just I think I like this one just a little bit better. Like I said before, I think that this is the best out of the original series of movies. Definitely. For me as well. Yeah, it's it's the best representation of the original cast. Right. Well, I also like the Kelvin timeline films quite a bit. Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond, which I kind of feel there's there's some parallels be- between here and beyond, but we'll talk more about that, hint, hint, next season. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I love those as well. I think they're a great representation of the original characters. Not not the cast themselves, but the original characters. You know, but Leonard Nimoy does, is in those as well. Yeah, of course. Of course. But yeah, no, how do you guys, um, Robert, how do you think that, that mo- this movie stands up today? You know, I really can't say that. Or I haven't seen too many of them to compare it to anything, you know? I really couldn't say that. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, just, just as on its own, you know, without the context of the other Star Trek films, just how do you think that it, you know, was it appealing for, for a movie made in the 80s? Does it does yeah, it hold up? Well, with the humor between Nemo and Shatner, it, I think it holds up. It reminds me a lot of Big Bang Theory, like Sheldon and his roommate. <laughs> I can that, see some Big Bang Theory in there. Yeah, yeah that, that's an interesting comparison. I think so. Uh, what about you, Bo? Well, as a standalone movie, it's fantastic. I mean, I really love the setting. I mean, I love them going back to 80s San Francisco. I love the message of the movie. It's still very timely. It's definitely an environmentalist message. I like the way that the characters are presented, especially Spock and Shatner. I think that they really shine in this, like Spock and Kirk, Shatner and Nimoy. They really shine in this movie. Definitely, and I think it's faithful, like I said earlier, to the spirit of the original series. And um, it really gets those characters, and it gets Star Trek uh, in a way that not all of the films seem to do. Um, But... Ultimately, I mean, whether if you're watching any kind of Star Trek, you're going to have fun. Yeah, but but I mean, that said, this is still the closest representation of the original cast to the original series as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is the best of the original cast. No, definitely. I, I agree. I thought it was fucking great. I mean, you guys want to go ahead and go into our final thoughts on this? I kind of thought that's what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, I guess that kind of is our final thoughts, right? We're yeah. yeah, we're doing that, right? That's pretty much what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, final thoughts for you, Robert? We need to watch it one more time. Okay. And then 
Yeah, it wasn't a good movie. I think it stands alone on its own for what it is. Yeah, 1986. Yeah. Just, I think I liked it more when they were earthbound and then they were finding out what currency, what money actually was, you know? Oh, yeah. They, you know, they've never used currency because in the future they don't. Like yeah. I said Star, Star Trek is completely socialist. I, it's so funny because, you know, I was in a shit posting group on Facebook and, you know, it always devolves into politicized arguments. It just always goes into that. But of, cor- of course, it's fucking Facebook. I mean, what do you expect? But <laughs> what's funny is, you know, a lot of people on there were like, well, why the hell would you be like a stringent conservative and be a fan of Star Trek? I mean, do you you do realize Star Trek is, you know, just just complete socialism. <laughs> if a bit authoritarian maybe. Yeah, but humanity, that's what I love about Star Trek, okay? Uh, there are wars, but humanity's focused on it. They're focused on exploration. There's no currency. People work because they have to, you know? Yeah, it's it's definitely a better paradigm than what we have now. Every, I I will not argue against that. Everyone's basic needs are taken care of, but you still have a motivation to to do better. And if that's a fantasy, you know, I get it. But it's a nice fantasy, and I feel like that's why Star Trek is one of the few like future set films that has a positive view of technology, has a positive view of progression, and an optimistic outlook like, hey, if we get our shit together... Yeah, you know, we could have this. I, I think maybe we missed the mark already, but we, we missed our chance. But who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Yeah, definitely. I mean, hey, we, we have a space force now. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think maybe one day. I think I think we're meant for the stars. So who knows? Wouldn't it be funny if inadvertently Donald Trump laid the foundation for what would eventually become the Federation with the space force? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't think that he'd be, like that too much. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a weird kind of irony? Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Who fucking knows? <laughs> but no, yeah. Well, maybe it would be kind of a slap at the face because it was like Donald Trump lays the the foundation for socialism, right? That yeah. I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't know. We don't want to get too political, but um, yeah. You can't. You have to. You have to admit that that's what you know. That's what goes on with Star Trek. That's it's an idealistic world and. You know, you can make an argument that maybe that doesn't actually work or maybe it's not possible, but it, it's a nice fantasy and it's it's so positive. And there's so many there's just too many series that have a negative portrayal of technology and progression. Like we're going to fuck e- ourselves up and destroy blah, blah, blah. This movie has an environmental message, but it's still hopeful. It's very hopeful, especially in the end when they've brought the humpback whales back to the 23rd century pretty much to repopulate that species. Yeah, and humanity looks back on themselves and says, that was terrible that what we did that time. And, you know, Spock says, um, it's not logical to hunt a species to extinction. It's not at all. And no. she says, you know, who said humans were logical? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because that kind of shuts Spock up for a little bit. And he just, you know, he kind of ponders that a little bit. You could tell. He does. And he, he's yeah. trying to ponder that this whole movie. But, yeah, no, that that's kind of our thoughts on Star Trek for the Voyage Home. I guess we'll we'll go into what we're uh, what's coming up next, but you know before that, you know you can find Collateral Cinema on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, we're on Chill Lover Radio. We're on YouTube. We are uploading more and more uh, content to Patreon very soon. We're gonna have some more commentaries for y'all. Um, also, hit us up on social media. You know, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the whole lot. I'm going to take the opportunity to gratuitously uh, plug my shit. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I mean, so 
um, Collateral Gaming is our other podcast, Collateral Gaming Video Game Podcast. Um, that's me and my brother Dakota, um, who sadly has not been on the last few episodes, but we're hoping to get him on on some of these upcoming ones. Um, yeah, definitely, like at least on Akira and Best Friends and yeah. Super Mario. Right, yeah, we need to get him on those episodes. I mean, he chose Super Mario, so, right. And Akira. Akira? Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. but why don't you go ahead and reveal what's coming up next? What's coming up next on Collateral Cinema is our two-part anime special. The first episode, part one, is going to be Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue, a really, really awesome psychological thriller-slash-horror anime that really predicted some interesting things in regards to the internet and internet culture and fandom. It's, it's, it's a very clairvoyant movie practically along with something like a series like Ex serial experiments lane you know it kind of really anticipated the internet age and it really just kind of bought brought it kicking and screaming into the 90s and the early 2000s sort of fuck yeah i haven't seen perfect blue but i've seen what's up for that akira right akira which is another incredibly relevant movie for our time. It's practically a straight dystopia. I love Akira. I'm a huge anime geek, so um, I'm really excited to talk about uh, both weeaboo. of those. <coughs> <Weeaboo. laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, I guess we may as well reveal what's coming up next after that, because I mean, we're heading towards our finale soon. We're going to be doing, I believe, our second video game movie ever, or our third because, you know, we've done House of the Dead, we've done Sonic, and now we're doing this one. We're doing the Super Mario Brothers movie. Super Mario Brothers. And I'm going to go ahead and say that we'll call it a collab because it's a video game movie. Yeah. We'll call it a collab with Collateral Gaming. Yeah, we might as well. We might as well. Yeah. Um, and then after that, our our uh, season finale on, on Best Friends. With a little help from Captain Nostalgia from Victims and Villains. And hopefully I'm going to have my brother back on the... Akira episode might have him Skype in or something. That would be badass. Yeah, yeah, I, w I would love to have him back on it. He does want to talk about that movie. But uh, yeah, Best Friends is gonna be great because you know we're huge Tummy Wiseau fans, the Room fans. We sneak a reference in every single time. We usually sneak sneak a quote in somewhere. Uh, still waiting on that if someone wants to chime in. Um, yeah, Tommy Wiseau, Greg Sistero coming together because um, they're 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 best friends. They're best friends. Yeah. <laughs> but but Johnny's my best friend. Also Johnny Vampire. <laughs> also Johnny Vampire. Um, so that's going to be fun. Uh, I know I teased Collateral Gaming a little bit, so what we'll be doing next is Tomb Raider, the 2013 reboot. Boo, you should do Tomb Raider 2 on the PlayStation. Best I mean, one ever. I want to, but... I was so impressed by the reboot and, and just the direction that they took the series with that. I, I checked out the reboot a little bit. It was it was pretty interesting. It's pretty badass. I like I like the angle they're going for with that. And I've played through that game so many times. So it's gonna be fun to talk about. We may also go a little bit into you know some of the sequels. I've been playing some of those lately, Rise and Shadow. But yeah, that that's what's coming up next for Collateral Gaming. Stay tuned for that. Also, uh, you can find us wherever you find Collateral Cinema, so don't uh, don't hesitate to reach out to both podcasts and stay tuned for content from both Patreon content. 
And also, if you are a podcaster or a YouTuber and you have a promo that you would like to run on our show, just hit us up on our DMs on Twitter or hit us up at our email, collateralcinemamoviepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up there and... It, definitely, if you're a podcast that we like, we'll definitely run your promo. Yeah, no, we're definitely uh, excited to uh, you know work with other uh, podcasts and kind of you know we're all in this together. We're trying to help each other out. Yeah, and also on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give us a five star rating and review. That will help us kind of move up the ranks a little bit as far as the charts are concerned. I believe we actually charted in the UK. For a little bit, like in the top 200. Fuck so, yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. So that's definitely something that we're working towards, and we would like to kind of have a little more reach on Apple Podcasts. So yeah, give us a five-star rating and review, and yeah, help us out there. I, I personally prefer the Apple Podcast platform just because, you know, there's no uh, platforming involved in that. It's it's just a directory. I like the direction Apple take with that. So, yeah, that's my preferred platform. But, um, yeah, no, we're super stoked to be working. As of the time of this recording, we're coming up on 6,000 downloads soon. Very overall. soon. Yeah, very, very soon. We're probably just... A little over 100 downloads left before we hit 6,000. So thank you guys for that. Thank you for listening to us ramble on about movies. And, you know, we're doing what we love. And and I would especially like to thank everybody who's listening to the Director's Cut episodes. Right, Robert? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have, those. yeah you have anything to say to our listeners there? Um, director's Cut, what are we doing next? I think we were talking about maybe diving into the Friday the 13th franchise. Or we can do another top five episode and an indie review. I think either way, yeah. we need to do pull another indie review here. Don't we soon. have an indie to do? We have a couple of indie yeah. shorts from uh, one from uh, a fellow podcast and another one from a, another production company. I'm going to have to go and check them out and watch the links and everything. Yeah. But look forward for some more indie reviews coming from Collateral Cinema Director's Cut. Definitely. Yeah, Fuck let's, yeah. let's do more of those, dude. Yeah, we definitely need to. And also... Very soon, we'll be doing some deep dives into the world of disturbing cinema. We're going to have our Exploring Disturbing Cinema series, and I think we're going to start that off with the films of Herschel Gordon Lewis. Fuck yeah. Guys, listen to the Collateral Cinema Director's Cut. Um, I'm not on these episodes, but I listen to all of them. So I can actually say without having that kind of bias and without being like, oh, like I, I like my own shit, I can say the content there is pretty good. I like it. I Yeah, and we have a veritable list of other top five lists and topics that we're going to get into probably some more franchise uh, deep dives and everything yeah we, yeah there's the list right there that ash spilled energy drink all over ah, thank you very yeah, much it's good. damn it it's still good but that's why you guys gotta go digital i read all my notes for collateral <laughs> gaming and the itinerary for this movie uh, in notes on my on my yeah. iphone yeah yeah but i i just like to have some actual paper notes to file. You know what I'm about to say? Okay. You know what I'm about to say? What? Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. I'm fucking millennial. God damn it. I was born in 1982. (laughs) We're all millennials here. And we can say that because Dakota's not here. Yeah, that's right. Little Zoomer. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, we love you, Dakota. But anyway, I guess we've rambled on long enough. Thank you guys for being on this journey with us, for taking the voyage home. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. But, uh, home. That being said, 
I'm Ashley Chancellor. I'm Bo Maddox. I'm Robert Ortegon. This is Collateral Cinema. We are out. We are out. Don't forget to check out our YouTube. Laters. Cinema is an L Company production. All music and movie clips are owned by the respective creators and are used for educational purposes only. Please don't sue us. We're poor.